Welcome to the Cybersecurity Weekly Podcast. I'm Jane Lowe, podcasting from Singapore today. And with us today, we are very fortunate to have Dr. Michael McGuire, who is the Senior Lecturer in Criminology at the Surrey Centre of Cybersecurity at the University of Surrey. And he will be sharing with us how cybercrime economies are shaping the character of nation-state conflict in cyberspace. Thank you, Dr. McGuire, for joining us in the podcast today. Hi, thank you very much, Jane, and good to be here. Yes, yeah, so I thought that we could kick off by clarifying what we mean by nation-state actors. And I think most of us, uh, of our listeners and audience, would think of nation-state actors as being connected to the country's um, military or foreign intelligence groups, such as Lazarus, which is the notorious North Korean threat actor, or Charming Kitten, the Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard cyber group, or, you know, Sam Worm, which is behind the Ukraine power plant's attack that is being connected and linked to the Russian intelligence services. But I think there's also more to um, identifying nation-state actors, such as their strategies. Um, and typically, we also think of them as deploying cyber operations to achieve some uh, nation's uh, strategic interests, such as disrupting adversaries, um, critical infrastructure, or stealing intellectual property. So are these some of the characteristics to look out for when we attribute incidents to nation-state actors versus, say, cyber criminals? Yes. In the report, I tried to set out some of the typical strategies that nation-states are using um, in cyberspace at the moment. Not all of the work I did actually got into the report. You know, this is a, an industry report that I, I worked with HP on this, and um, there's some sensitivities there about what we could talk about. But the, uh, certainly the, the military and intelligence aspects that you've identified, Jane, are very much at the centre of what nation states are doing. But I think that would be slightly misleading to think about that as the only focus of interest. Um, what I found in my research, um, this is a, quite a, a, a large piece of research, if I just mention the background to it a little bit. Um, this is a piece of research that began um, a couple of years ago with just looking, the initial question is, what kind of money are cyber criminals making? It's obviously a very attractive um, field of uh, work, should we say. So the aim was to try and find out what, they're, what kind of money they are, they're earning and how they're spending this. And the results that emerged were very surprising. There's a very, very large economy. I call it an economy. And we can perhaps talk about the reasons for that during um, our conversation. Um, but it is certainly an economy rather than just the old, old idea of cybercrime as a business. And um, there's a lot of money floating around in this economy. We, we estimated, and it's a conservative estimate, that there's something like about $1.5 trillion that are floating around in the cybercrime economy. That, now, that's uh, such a large figure. It's, it's more than, for example, the top three Fortune 500 companies combined. It's bigger than the uh, GDP of many nation states. And for that reason, it's, it's appealing, um, we found in this research, not just to your obvious criminals or even your more organized cybercrime gangs, but to larger institutions and, to, and in fact, to nation states. Nation states have an economic interest in um, cybercrime as much as they have a military or strategic or intelligence uh, or interest. So that might be a first point of um, difference. So this study that you uh, conducted is a continuation of the previous study that you did in 2018. And I believe that is a combination of analysis of um, known nation-state cyber attacks up to earlier this year, right? So uh, basically the activities that we've seen during the COVID period 
And I believe that one observation that you made is that the nation state activities in cyberspace accelerated during the COVID period. So are you seeing that the nation state actors are emulating the monetary success of cyber criminal groups, such as, for example, ransomware activities? Yes, indeed. Yeah. And this is one of the really fascinating things. I mean, as I suggested, this actually is a third report in a series of reports we've done, first of which began to, with a report looking, which called the Web of Profit, looking at the cybercrime economy as a whole, and then seeing how this is unfolding within certain kinds of um, more applied spheres. So we look then at what's happening with social media. How is social media reflecting, developing, supporting and enabling the cybercrime economy? How more obviously is the dark markets doing the same? And then third uh, is what's happening at the global level here with nation states. So we looked at this period over about, um, as you say, about 18 months. Um, we spoke to a lot of people who are very, very high up in government and intelligence. And we also built on our observations from, from the previous reports, for example, talking to uh, vendors on the dark net. Um, we, ha we had a, a number of interviews with people who buy and sell commodities on the dark net. And um, what we found uh, in this piece of research is that nation states are very much involved in this economy. And you gave the example of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, we found that in many cases, nation states were in some cases following, copying the types of things that cyber criminals were doing in relation to things like phishing and ransomware, but also were actually initiating a lot of activities uh, across uh, cyberspace, the dark net and so on. Um, to um, to exploit this economy. So they were very much alert, very much in tune with the kinds of opportunities that COVID-19 was bringing. And I was surprised by that. I mean, one, one would expect that there might be some jockeying for position, some maneuvering to see how they could benefit from the, the COVID-19 pandemic in terms of their uh, sort of global strategic interests. But in terms of more straightforward economic interest, I was more surprised by that. Are you uh, referring to nation state actors as being both um, contributors to the uh, cyber under underground economy as well as benefiting from what is going on? Very much so. Yeah. It, it, I mean, we a lot of the data that we um, came up with this in this research, we couldn't include in the report. So I'm publishing a book called Platform Criminality, which is about a shift from cybercrime to um, a kind of a platform form of crime. And I'll be producing a lot more of the data that we found in this research at that stage. But we were able to do a number of estimates, you know, about how nation states are actually directly benefiting financially from this economy. The benefits they receive from COVID-19 is one example. But um, you have um, countries like Russia, for example, which we know we can estimate quite credibly uh, are probably making more money from cybercrime-related activities than they are from, you know, more traditional activities like military weapon sales, which um, is, is quite a turnaround if you think wow. about it from, from, you know, the kind of geopolitical situation that they would have been in the post-war world. Um, other nation-state actors that are perhaps more familiar to everyone, um, like North Korea, are substantially bolstering their economy, their lack of foreign currency and so on, by engaging in cybercrime activities. So we have a range of suspects, some of which are overtly engaged in cybercrime, like North Korea, some of which are engaged in cybercrime activities 
so Russia and China, you know, from a point of view of, um, of certainly advancing their strategic interests, there's no doubt about that, but also in gaining economic advantages. And then we have countries which uh, are perhaps, you know, engaged in perfectly legitimate activities on one level, such as Israel, where cybersecurity is now one of the main ingredients of their economy. And um, although they're, they're buying and selling these commodities largely legitimately, they are still benefiting economically from the fact that cybercrime exists. And in some cases, they're crossing over into gray areas. So you may be familiar with all the stories around the Pegasus software mm. that, the, you know, that the NCO group have um, bought and sold. And have actually, um, th this company has now been blacklisted in the United States. And a lot of the commodities the NSO group are selling have also, you know, being investigated. So there actually is a, there's some very, very interesting grey areas. And that's one of the things that fascinated me most in the way that the legitimate economy operates and the way that it's blurring with this illegitimate economy. And you have legitimate actors like nation states trading, operating, sometimes bolstering that economy. So, I mean, one very obvious example of that is the kind of tools that security agencies are developing like the Eternal Blue tool that uh, the you know the, the United States um, security agencies developed, and then which were hacked and then are now for sale. You can buy them all across the dark net. Right. So either intentionally or unintentionally, mm. there are all kinds of ways in which these two economies, these types of actors, are crossing over. So are you um, seeing that uh, aside from trading tools and software, that they are also trading, for example, information, knowledge, skill sets? Yes. Very much so, yeah. I mean, as, as the example I just gave of the, you know, the tools and the skill sets that go with those tools, mm. um, sometimes it's by accident rather than design. Um, but certainly some of the spoke people we spoke to um, in terms of the vendors, they told us that probably about 25% of the, the sales that they, they are engaged with go to actors which they called unconventional. They didn't want to say too much about who these people were, but they mm. obviously know they buy and sell, um, whether it's malware, whether it's ransomware, whether it's DDoS attacks. They sell a variety of cybercrime tools. This crimeware market is, is well known to investigators mm -hmm. now, but it's the kind of people who they're selling to, and that's much harder to get to the bottom of. Obviously, there's there's a lot of uh, nervousness on the parts of these people. So it's only because we'd built up relationships over two or three years that we were able to get the kind of information that we were able to get. Um, as I say again, some of the people they're selling to now, obviously nobody comes onto the market and says, hey, we're China or Russia or we're the United States, can mm -hmm. we buy some cybercrime tools? Nobody's, nobody does that. But they have people acting on their behalf, uh, proxy agents, and the proxy agents who are buying and selling these tools appear to be occupying a larger slice of this economy, at least 25%. Mm -hmm. Yes. So when people think about nation state actors, right, um, four names come to mind, like North Korea, Iran, China, Russia, and you mentioned also Israel. Um, and when we think about some of the uh, activities that have been attributed to, say, for example, North Korea, they are very sophisticated. And one question that many immediately would have is how did North Koreans, uh, nation state actors, manage to gain you know, their skill set, their knowledge in performing some of these offensive operations because 
you know, the uh, the media uh, reports that we read about North Korea, the economy is not exactly what we would say is, you know, first world economy. And therefore, we would think that, for example, the internet infrastructure would be quite not as advanced. And hence, it's always quite impressive how their cyber armies manage to be so knowledgeable despite the um, weaknesses in their technology and communication infrastructure. So that is also always a question that we have when we think about, you know, some of the um, uh, second or third tier nation state actors. How did, how do they gain their skill set and knowledge? Yeah, well, this is a very very interesting question, of course, um, and uh, it's one that we're, we're kind of developing an understanding of as we're going along here. But one of the things I talk about in the report is this concept of, you know, we often think about certainly in the First World War and the Second World War. Um, nation states moved to what were effectively war economies. Um, and some of them did very well out of this. You know, no, notoriously, one of the reasons for the popularity of Hitler was that he turned Germany over to a kind of a war economy very early on before the war had even started. And this, um, this increased demand in the economy, increased supply of certain goods, wages increased, employment increased. So a war economy started to develop around conflict and that was actually in some ways very beneficial. And, you know, the argument, one of the arguments of the report is that we're seeing something like cyber war economies now. The different difference between conflict and war is something that the report tries to explore a little bit. And it gives a few data points which suggest that we might be a lot closer to cyber war than perhaps we, we, we would want. Um, but in the process of developing these cyber war economies, um, nation states make decisions about where to direct resources, um, how to deploy people, how to acquire certain skills. And it's clear that South, that North Korea has um, has done a very impressive job. You know, the, the economic difficulties of the country are well known. And in a sense, that provides one rationale for them engaging in cybercrime to try and get around the sanctions that they face, to get around the lack of, uh, of foreign currency, to get around the lack of sort of, you know, old style physical commodities, um, whether it's oil, whether it's minerals or whatever it might be. So they've clearly directed a lot of their resources into training individuals to a very, very, very high level, um, to acquiring the kinds of information technology they need to be able to mount the kind of attacks that they're doing. Exactly how they're doing that was not something that we were able to uncover in the report. But one has some educated guesses about this kind of thing. Clearly, there's a relationship with China there. So there are goods going across the border, perhaps um, that are a higher end of the, the IT market. Um, they've certainly indicated that they're more than ready to acquire these things by theft or by intelligence. And there have been a number of quite well documented attacks on intellectual property, which they've managed to acquire. So I think it's been um, it's been an interesting exercise in how a nation state like South, uh, North Korea has been able to compete and, and in many cases directly compete with nations like the United States. Um, but of course, this is one of the defining characteristics of cyber conflict, if not cyber war, is its asymmetric nature. Um, we're seeing a situation where very small nation states are able to compete with, and in some cases undermine and disrupt the activities of much larger um, cyber, uh, um, you know, nation state activities. And I think somewhere in the report, there is a kind of um, a table of how the power of, of certain nation states have changed um, in the context of cyber conflict. So talking about war economies and asymmetric nature of cyber operations, 
Um, I think one question that also many would have is, you know, why would nation states pursue activities in cyberspace versus connect the war in a conventional space like land, sea and air, right? And you brought up the point about the asymmetric nature of cyber attacks and that smaller nations, you know, can confront larger powers because cyber tools are possibly more accessible and could be equally disruptive. So that could be one reason why activities in that space is more viable or favourable. Absolutely, yeah. And in fact, we identified 10 key uh, characteristics of cyber conflict in the report, which supports the idea that this is something very different than anything we've ever seen before. Um, I mean, um, you know, the asymmetric nature is one characteristic, you know, smaller powers can successfully confront larger powers. And we found, for example, that of the long list of incidents that we analysed in the report, they, they were involved conflicts between nation states who were attacked by or in conflict with groups of less than 15 to 20 individuals. Presumably, a lot of these were proxy, um, you know, the advanced persistent threat groups, the APT groups who act on behalf of states. And in many cases, actually directly represent the interests of states. So if you look at that, 70% of incidents involve this kind of conflict between a large nation state and a small group of individuals, presumably acting on behalf of an, another nation state. Mm -hmm. um, there is um, what often, often seems to be the case of what we call a molecular um, characteristic to this kind of conflict. So there may be multiple agents operating together. So you might get a nation state sponsoring a ransom, ransomware attack, for example. But at the same time, there might be their intelligence agency or a proxy group, which they have plausible deniability about, also involved in the same attack. So you get this multi-vector attack going on. And of course, these conflicts are often multi-dimensional as well. So, you know, they might involve uh, an attack upon a network or uh, an infrastructure, but it might also involve attacks upon assets, you know, business groups, we found that the rise in business email compromise, for example, which is a well-recognized phenomenon now, round about 40% um, of the incidents we looked at were supported or in conjunction with an attack on a business or um, a leading economic agency, as well as a physical agency or indeed a military agency. And um, we also found that there was a kind of a global, you know, to use this term of um, a fashionable term, combining global and local interests. So you often found that there were, you know, attacks going on in cyberspace, which supported local regional conflicts, about 20% about of the incidents we looked at. So this is happening across a wide spectrum. And um, the, the very interesting thing is that nation states who are large, nation states who are small are all involved in this. And this is unlike anything that we've seen previously. Do you also find that conventional warfare is also beginning to integrate cyber capability, for example, like an attack on a critical infrastructure is preceded by a, a cyber intrusion? Very much so, yeah. Yeah, this, is, this was a really interesting thing we found. And there are a number of examples of that, uh, particularly in the Gulf uh, area where you would have a cyber attack that was followed by a missile attack or a missile attack that was then supported by, um, you know, uh, an attack on uh, an institution. And of course, there are some, some notorious and very well-known incidents of like this taking place in, in the Gulf, particularly between Iran and um, Saudi Arabia and Israel, where you're having physical attacks on some of the nuclear facilities that Iran has. Um, sometimes these are, as in the Stuxnet example and other more recent ones, 
Um, these are pieces of software which are weaponized. And this is, again, incredible, really, when you think about it. But at the same time, assassinations are taking place on the street of nuclear scientists or members of the nuclear establishment. So across the board, you're getting this multi-vector, this multi-spectrum type of conflict emerging where economic interests are being set against uh, military interests, intelligence interests, and um, directed attacks are taking place across all these different spheres of activity. And the other trend you pointed out, I think you briefly mentioned it earlier, uh, is that uh, the activities have escalated to uh, what you call a advanced cyber conflict. So I think you looked at um, over a period of 10 years, how it has um, started from a level of what you call cyber competition to cyber conflict and now advanced cyber conflict. Yeah, that's right. So, what I mean, people talk about this all the time, of course, and that, that you know, it's as I'm sure you're familiar with, um, Jane, the, the debate amongst commentators is, you know, is is there such a thing as cyber war? And if there was, what would it be like? Would we even know that we were in it? So, what we wanted to do in the research was try and provide a little bit more of a precise measurement of the kind of level of conflict that is now existing in cyberspace. So what we did was we we looked at a period of about 20 years from the year 2000 to the year 2020, and we used a series of indicators that um, that have been used previously by commentators to look at the slide into physical war. So, you know, what, what indicated that we were about to go into war in the Second World War, the First World War, and the Franco-Prussian War, and so on, a series of conflicts back to the 19th century. So we used these same indicators and then applied them to the situation that we now find ourselves in. So just to give you a sense of that, here's two or three indicators we use. What kind of perception was that there were reasons not to engage in war? Um, what kind of perception by people engaged in conflicts that acts do constitute acts of war? What kind of sense is there that engaging in conflict will result in profits or benefits? Um, and will these exceed the costs? So we picked out about um, 10 of these and um, then we saw to what extent was that true in 2000, to what extent was it true in 2010 and to what extent are these indications true in 2020. Um, and we found that um, we're now in a situation which in the year 2000, there were probably only two indicators in place. In the year 2020, all of those indicators are now in place. So if you're going to measure conflict or the level of conflict or the seriousness of conflict by something like this system, how many indicators of war are in place, then by the indicators that we identify in the place, in the report rather, um, every single one of them is now active. So that is a good reason for suggesting that there has been an escalation and that there has been uh, a developing type of conflict that's going on between nation states. Whether we want to call it war yet, I mean, you know, we'll leave that for um, for perhaps the military strategists. But from a social science perspective, which is obviously the one that I'm coming from in terms of measurement, it looks very much more that we're in a state of advanced and we call it advanced cyber conflict rather than cyber war, just to kind of hedge our bets a little bit. Mm -hmm. But, mm -hmm. you know, um, we're saying that we're very much in a state of advanced com conflict, cyber conflict when compared to the year 2000. Mm, yeah, so another trend that you pointed out as well is um, aside from the 
increasing uh, cyber physical attacks. You also talked about supply chain attacks, which of course uh, we hear a lot about since last year with the solar winds uh, incident. But another one that you pointed out is the cultural aspect. The you call it the cognitive hacking of of attitudes on social media, and you briefly talked about it earlier as well. And this is, I guess, what many would say is the disinformation campaigns, and this is attacking the social cultural fabric. So, do you see that these are deployed by nation states that traditionally have strong intelligence services and targeting mainly English-based social media? Yeah, I think that's a good point you make. That、um, that the people who are best at this tend to be、um, nation states with very strong intelligence agencies who have learned all the tricks about propaganda, about psychological warfare, and so on. So this is clearly taking place, you know, in the the kind of democratic context of nation states with more democratic、um, institutions, because of course it's just much easier to disrupt those. It's much easier to plant ideas that、um, are perhaps disruptive and so on. But I think we haven't got a full picture here.、Um, we do stress this in the report a little bit,、um, and certainly this is in the book that I'm writing. I'll be saying more about this. We know a lot more about what countries like Russia and China are doing than we do about what America and the United Kingdom and Europe are doing, for some obvious reasons. I mean, our intelligence agencies just don't tell us these things, and for that reason, I suspect、uh, there are a lot of intelligence-based attacks, conflicts going on in places like China and Russia, which、uh, aren't always apparent to us. So I would say that information warfare in cognitive、um, cognitive attacks. Are something that is now a global phenomenon. We are experiencing a huge rise in these kind of things in the West, partly because there are just so many vehicles, there are so many media streams that you can exploit,、um, and、uh, we, you know we've seen the phenomenon of the the so-called filter bubble, where people are increasingly less willing to look at news or information sources across a wide spectrum, but to restrict their consumption of information. To those views which most conform to their own, so this confirmation bias that we're seeing、uh, makes it a lot easier for hostile intelligence agencies to exploit.、Um, hopefully, we're going to gain increasing understanding of how this is happening at a global level across all kinds of nation states, rather than just attacks on America, Europe, and the UK.、Mm. Yeah, that was one question I was going to ask. A lot of what we know about North Korea or Iran or Russia and China is really coming from, say, reports from. From US or from UK,、yeah. but we don't know very much about what's going on in China or Russia, or we don't even know what they think about what's going on in terms of nation-state actors. So we yeah, don't. Is, yeah, now this is a huge gap in knowledge,、um, and it's something I've written about a lot in my work. Is we really don't even have fifty percent of the, the picture, really, in any kind of robust or substantive way. So this is a gap. I mean, increasingly, cybercrime researchers. Are using sort of Chinese speakers or Russian speakers, and we used some some Russian speakers to talk to some vendors on Russian darknet sites to try and get a sense of what they're thinking and what they're doing and what their relationship with the government is.、Um, but this is an area of research that needs needs significant attention, and it's going to come through partnership. You know, I mean, I, I, I'm doing a lot of work with、um, researchers in South Korea at the moment, trying to、um, look at the operations of markets there. And I think these kind of collaborations at an international level will be only to the benefit of everyone. And hopefully, we can. Obviously, the current situation with the pandemic has has put、um, made it very difficult、uh, on one level because there's nothing that beats sitting in a room with somebody and talking about things. But at the、mm. same time, 
you know, the kind of growth there's been in Zoom chats, the kind of chat we're having now. You're in Singapore, I'm in London, um, and we're that's having right. a perfectly re reasonable mm -hmm. conversation. Um, so hopefully that's going to add to um, collaboration and to cooperation. And hopefully in the next 10 years, we're going to get a much more three-dimensional picture of what's going on in terms of nation-state attacks, relationships, mm -hmm. and so on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there had been a lot going on in the U.S. Uh, in terms of arrests and indictments of uh, yeah. Russian yeah, hackers and you know Chinese hackers. But I wonder what the uh, Chinese government is preparing in terms of uh, similar sort of uh, defenses, if you, if you can call it defenses. Um, yeah. yeah, so looking at these trends, um, what are the latest in terms of our policy developments and challenges that you found from your study? Uh, I was going to say, you know, one example that I could think of is um, attribution challenge, right? Because nation states, unlike organizations, are not agnostic to, with respect to the identity of the threat actor when it comes to policy response, because um, the country needs to know whether you want to impose and who to impose, uh, say, for example, payment sanctions against or banning the use of a particular nation's technology and equipment in their own particular country. Um, so the attribution challenge, I think, is one of the um, difficulties when it comes to formulating policies. But I'd like to get your thoughts in terms of, you know, what are the latest policy challenges to address such um, activities in cyberspace uh, by nation state actors? Yeah, I mean, attribution is is everything, really. And it's it's one of the, the, the reasons why this very peculiar situation where we're in, where we don't know whether it's conflict, advanced cyber conflict or cyber war, is attribution is all but impossible, really. I mean, at the very, very high intelligence level, um, clearly certain cybersecurity agencies are getting better at spotting patterns. And that's really the only tool we've got is to, are there signatures in an attack which tells us that it's a Chinese APT group or a Russian APT group. Um, and even if we deduce that it might be, then of course no nation state is ever going to admit to this. Uh, you know, if, in a physical conflict, when you cross a border with a, an army of tanks, there's no denying what's happened. Um, in the cyber situation, it, it could be anything that's happening. It could be, an, and this, of course, is a, a standard strategy, a nation state will say, well, it's nothing to do with us. We have criminals in our society the same way as you've got criminals in your society. Um, we do our best to stop them, but we can't completely shut them down. So it's always going to be possible um, in terms of the attribution problem to say that, um, that we, it wasn't us or somebody else did it, or and even it was a simulated attack by a hostile nation state to make it look as if we did it. And that there are you know, claims like this circulating all over the place. Um, so that's you're absolutely right to identify that that is one of the challenge. One of the things we look at in the report is a couple of things that in terms of how things are developing is, well, what kind of tools are available to nation states now? How is weaponry changing? Um, how will the nature of um, cyber attacks change to force policy changes? But then more on the policy level, what kind of responses are there? How are nation states responding increasingly? What are their intelligence agency doing? And then third, what in terms of agreements, is there any sense in which we're having a kind of a program of um, trying to make agreements in cyberspace to develop some kind of um, treaty which could perhaps prevent future attacks? Because it's clear that if we let things continue in the way that they're going, there is going to be a tipping point and things are going to get nasty. So anything we can do to deflate that or, or to remove some of the tensions is a very positive step. There are things going on in the United Nations. Uh, there are obviously self-interest self on the part of nation states not to let things escalate too far. 
So I'm hopeful that within the next 10 years, we're going to have a kind of uh, something like a treaty of the kind that we just don't have at the moment. But um, we've got a long way to go to get to that point. I think there are some encouraging signs because uh, we, we, we read about this uh, cooperation agreement between Russia yeah. and Iran, right? And yeah. this is just back signed back in March. So we may yet see more between other countries. I think so, yeah. I mean, Russia has um, has raised uh, action at the UN at the moment, which is uh, there, there are lots of uh, committees meeting about this. And um, that certainly the experts, about um, 70% of the experts we spoke to said that some form of cyber treaty is absolutely essential now. And they think that it might come within the next 10 to 20 years. So in terms of the experts we spoke to, there is certainly actually optimism. But the kinds of challenges in making this work there's at least two that we identify. One is the scope of any agreement. Who is going to be party to it? Because if big players stand outside any agreement, you know, if, if there's a Russia or a China that doesn't sign up um, or an India, then um, it, you know, the scope of the agreement is obviously going to be significantly limited. And then the, the issue of consensus, what kind of principles should shape any agreement? You know, should it be a limitation of cyber weapons? Should it be some kind of answerability if a nation state steps outside the terms of the agreement? So there are some huge challenges here, but I think it's quite clear, you know, some of the things we talk about coming from industry. So there's a cybersecurity tech accord. There are industry, uh, you know, sort of sponsored activities like the Charter of Trust by Siemens. Um, there's the Paris Call. There's, of course, the European initiative, the Budapest Cybercrime Convention. And um, there's the uh, US vulnerability equities process, which is going on at the, the, the UN level and the GGE process. Hopefully, one of these is going to stick. We shall just wait and see. Right. Yes. Um, hopefully, one of these uh, will lead to uh, a safer cyberspace for everyone. Um, uh, Dr. Maguire, thank you for your time. We have come to almost come to the end of our podcast. But before we go, just one final question. The study that you conducted was released, I believe, earlier this year. So between earlier this year to uh, almost the end of the year, you know, how much have you seen in terms of changes since you released the report? Unfortunately, what we've seen is an acceleration of some of the themes that the reports identified. So just when we were doing going into publication with the report, we had, you know, a lot of the big uh, attacks on the US pipeline, the colonial pipeline attack. We had, you know, the Microsoft attack. And um, of course, yeah, we had the supply chain um, attack that, that you spoke about earlier on. Um, since then, it looks like there has been uh, an increased focus on things like uh, ransomware, there have been a number of big cryptocurrency heists, which my team of researchers suspect are very much nation state driven. Um, so unfortunately, it looks like there's been an acceleration. And uh, that was one of the things the report predicted. And the ongoing uncertainties around the pandemic, of course, have not helped that process. So we're probably in a slightly worse position than we were when the report was published. But hopefully next year, 2022, we're going to see people sitting down. Some of these processes, like the GGE process, are going to start to come to fruition. And nation states are going to sit back and say, what benefit really is there for us to be in this constant state of um, instability? Yes, yeah. I think um, last year uh, with the U.S. elections, I think that was also yeah. an opportunity for cyber threat actors to uh, exploit uh, a lot of vulnerabilities, whether it's software or in the cognitive uh, realm. 
All right. Okay. So uh, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Maguire. Thank you for your time to share with us the insights on how cybercrime economies are shaping the character of nation-state conflict in cyberspace and also about some of the highlights from your reports and some of the trends and challenges in policy developments. And uh, hopefully uh, when we sit down with you next time uh, with your next publication, it will be a more optimistic state of play. Let's hope so, yeah. Well, thank you for a very interesting conversation, Jane. Uh, you know, it's a sign of just how vital this issue is. We could have spoken about this for another, several hours and still not come to an end. So thank you very much for talking to me about my research. Mm -hmm.